Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. I think that's uh, <laughs> Russian for Achtung, Achtung. It's, look, it's or a, something like it. Something like it, yeah, yeah. Which can only mean one thing. It's time for We Have Ways of Making You Talk, the Second World War podcast, which we like to see as a plucky partisan holed up in a small cluster of trees outside Hoffenheim. Over the next 45 minutes, you can expect occasional outbursts of rapid fire nonsense from me, Al Murray. And me, James Holland. And also, you might hear the odd yawn and little scrape from Betsy, who's sitting underneath uh, my table. Um, <laughs> Betsy's not my wife. Um, she's, uh, <laughs> she's my Irish terrier dog, and she likes to accompany me. And she's absolutely fascinated by the Second World War. Good. Just can't get enough of it. You're good. Well, you know, you raised that dog right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we'll be answering your questions. We've had lots, and it's been brilliant. So please keep them coming. Uh, On to the hashtag WeHaveWays. Uh, and we'll be exploring this most extraordinary period of world history through ephemera, through forgotten stories, and, of course, trying to answer your questions. So, uh, right then, we've had some amazing ones coming Well, in. yes, people people uh, came to the hashtag like flypaper. And um, Dave Ben um, asks a very simple uh, and direct question. Bren Gun or MG34? I quite like both. <laughs> 
I think I think this isn't this is a an either or question. This well, is a, I don't want to get into is, the whole kind of ephemera thing, but <laughs> literally right behind me. Yes, I noticed. What have I got? You've got an MG34. I've got an MG34. Um, so I'm just going to do this because it makes a reassuring noise. Oh. Hold on. <laughs> this might not work. Oh yeah. Do you hear that? Yeah. yeah. Clunk. Oh, that's good. And Clunk. just behind, um, over there, by the door, is a brand gun. Oh, as well. So you, can, you can visually compare the two. But the thing about the about the MG thirty four, you can see this here. It's yeah. air cooled. Um, it's not um, got the sort of the. the that's a Sten. That's gun. a Sten gun. That's uh, not the, a, our podcast. That, that can be another time. Another our podcast one. team have grabbed the James as I a mean, Sten it is, gun. The MG thirty four is is a kind of thing of engineering mastery. Yeah. Um, this comes with a spare barrel, actually. It's got nine inspection stamps on it, all of which are completely pointless. Yeah. Um, particularly in a time of total war. The thing about the Bren gun is it's just solid. It's more solid. It, yeah. it can fire 250,000 rounds without you needing to change the barrel. Yeah. It's got a wooden handle. It's absolutely solid as a rock. It'll just keep firing incredibly accurately. This is a bit more scattergun. It's not as scattergun as the uh, MG42 that yeah. we had at you, you've yeah. got. Um but it is quite scattergun. But this takes 150 man hours, whereas a Bren gun takes about 50. So you could have three Brens for every MG34. I mean, they're just it just is over engineered. There's no getting around now, it. Am I right in thinking though that because the the Bren gun uh, is a Czech weapon, isn't it? It's half Czech. It's from Brun. Brun, in... Brun and Enfield. So that's where the name comes from. It's Bruno and, and Enfield. Exactly. But this, does that mean there's a sort of there's a Czech Bren gun equivalent? That the German army then ends up using because they gobble up all of uh, Czech kit and people and yes, you will see down there by your feet. Yeah, an amazing book called Small Arms Artillery and Special Weapons of the Third Reich. Okay, that that is the book that you just have to have, and that has got <laughs> every single one they use, and you'll see the Czech equivalent in okay. there under under machine guns. Under machine guns. Yep. Um, I mean, the yes. point is, is the brain gun is incredibly reliable. It is magazine felt uh, um, fed rather than belt fed, which means you've got to change it a lot. Yeah. Um, the MG34 has a rate of around sort of 900 rounds per minute, whereas the Bren is more like about 500. Practical rate of fire, again, you know, we talked about this when we were talking about the MG42, is about 120 rounds for both yeah. per minute. You do get that kind of amazing burst of fire from the MG34. It's much more accurate than the MG42. It's much more controllable than the MG42, but it does take 150 man-hours, you know, yeah, which in the yeah. time of total war is not really what you want. Yeah, yeah. You know, I it's just too the, expensive. I found the German Bren gun, the yeah, 7 mil machine, machining gewehr. And it remarks, originated as British development of Czech ZB26. I mean, at a glance, you, you can't tell the difference. Um, production in the UK commenced in 37, usually known simply as Bren, which stood for Bruno, uh, Bruno Enfield. Captured guns often used battlefield issue, but also armed various occupation troops. Notable as one of the best light machine guns of World War II. There, in there a, you go. In a German book. How about that? Okay, so so we're saying Bren gun. Right, okay. Um, would focusing Andy and Brum, um, who asked us some ex an excellent question last time around, would focusing on mosquitoes and precision bombing have been more effective and efficient than the heavy bombers. And I assume he's, he's talking about area bombing, bombing bomber command, Lancasters yep. versus mosquitoes as your way of delivering yep. that strategy. Uh, and actually, you know, he's not the first person to suggest it, and it was even suggested in the war. I mean, the advantage of the of the mosquitoes is they can fly incredibly fast, you know, at 
over 400 miles an hour at high altitude. They can fly at high altitude out of range of anti-aircraft guns. Yeah. Um, and frankly, there's no German fighter that's going to catch it either. Yeah. So from that point of view, it's good. But the problem is that they can only carry, you know, just under two tonnes worth of bombs compared with... You know, most Lancasters can carry kind of sort of four or five, and they can carry ten if you really need them to. Um, you know, the ten-ton yeah. Grand Slam, although most of them didn't for a normal a normal bombing operation. Um, the problem is, is that at thirty-five thousand feet, you're not going to be particularly accurate, even with sort of improved navigational aids. So that means you probably need to get down a little bit lower, which means you're going to be safe from you know other enemy fighters, but you're not going to be particularly safe from flak. Um, and you're not going to be delivering as much ordnance, but on the other hand, you're going to save quite a number of crew. The other big problem, of course, so so it's kind of sort of Swings six and one half a dozen yeah. of the other. But I think on you know you're just simply not going to be able to carry the same weight of ordnance that a Lancaster, a fleet of Lancasters can which deliver. Which if we're which if we're honest about area bombing in the war, precision bombing. There's only really there's only really. I mean, I don't know, a, a dozen precise precision raids. Yes, and 617 Squadron, which is, which is set it, yeah. up in April 19, you know, sort of end of March um, 1943, specifically for the Dams Raid, which happens in the middle of May 1943. That is, a, you know, that is not set out to be an elite squadron, but becomes one, particularly under Leonard Cheshire when he yeah. takes over. He evolves it into this elite bombing force, and they are used to be precision bombers, and they're pretty darn good at it, frankly. Yeah. Um, the, the the problem you've got is, yes, you can swing down and, and, and operate at lower altitudes, and but you're not going to be that much more accurate, to be honest, in a mosquito. You're going to be a little bit safer but you're not then going to be able to deliver the weight of ordnance. So it's not really going to improve things. Mm. What it is going to improve is, you know, obviously if you're in a two-man crew rather than a five-man, a seven-man crew, then, you know, there's less people likely to get killed if you do get hit. Yeah. Um, but you're not going to be doing the job. The other problem, of course, is that, you know, so the other thing is, well, why don't you stick with a few Lancasters but have a few more Mosquitoes as bombers? Well, you know, they were doing that. I mean... Yeah. By the end by the end of the war, the bomber forces were quite well evolved in that in that respect. So you'd have well, you'd pathfinders met, and... Yeah. Yeah. You, you've met Colin Bell, haven't you? Yeah. Brilliant guy. You know, he, he was flying kind of sort of mosquito bombers at the end of war over Berlin. He was the guy who used to kind of sort of have a little nap at the end of the... Yeah. On, the on the way home. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely incredible. But... <laughs> But the th- um, but 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 you you know the other problem is of course is is to do that you would need large numbers of mosquitoes to deliver the kind of ordnance you would need and there isn't the capacity to build that many mm. mosquitoes. I mean yes, I, th- I I mean th- this question does come up and, and come round and uh, uh, and I always think it's a kind of grass is greener. Um, I think you're right. Uh, uh, a way of looking at things and, and and after all precision. The Americans bombed in daylight because they because so they could be precise. And and very rarely hit the thing they're aiming at, and and you know, and embarked on all those ball bearing raids and synthetic oil raids and and Messerschmitt factory raids and all that stuff to try and be precise and to try and deliver those sort of surgical knockout blows and and didn't succeed either. So the the the, the problem with the problem with bombing in the Second World War is there is real no real way of delivering anything on target super accurately. No. So what you end up doing is flattening entire cities it's, that's what you end up having yeah. having to do because you've committed to that as your yeah. um, uh, way of doing things. i mean you know i mean some of the sort of you know the german answer kind of you know the morality of, of strategic bombers saying you know okay so 
there was the Holocaust, but you know, you Brits went and sort of created a yeah. Holocaust by killing lots of civilians. The difference, of course, is that you know, at the end of the war, we stopped bombing their cities because they gave up. Whereas it had Germany won, they'd have carried on killing Jews and, yeah. and other people they didn't like. Yeah. You know, so it's not comparable at all. Yeah. But um, yeah, God, you get very quickly into murky ground, don't you? Yes, you do. You certainly do. So we'll um, let, let's lighten the mood a little. Um, what's your favourite British movie star in a World War Two story? Asks Dan Jackson. E.g., Lieutenant Ali Gallic Guinness, RNVR, invading Sicily, and David Niven in Phantom, etc. Well, I was thinking about this. I, you know, because um, my favourite sort of British character in in a in a war movie is errol flynn playing captain courtney in dawn patrol which is absolutely brilliant and, and the opening scene of that is this is the first world war of course that sort of aces high and you see errol flynn sort of going in his machine gun with his kind of sort of goggles on and stuff and then they they land back down and david niven jumps out and goes what oh courtney pretty hot up there and errol flynn goes out and goes pretty warm it's just fantastic but um but but Second World War movie, well, it would have to be Christopher Plummer. But and then I'm thinking, well, actually, he's Canadian, isn't he? And Christopher mm. Plummer in um, in Battle of Britain. I've even got a signed photo of Christopher Plummer in my downstairs loo. Yes, I spotted that earlier. Yeah, uh, but uh, Robert Shaw then, you know, because well, he's or, or, or it's Richard Todd who was at. I mean, the great Richard Todd thing is he was at Pegasus Bridge because he was yes. the re- he was Amazing. the relief parachuted in as a captain as the relief, and then he plays Major Howard. Um, so there's a scene where... How weird would that have been? A, there was a very odd scene where he basically, for want of a better way of putting it, relieves himself and uh, in the in the film, you know, where he, he he's... It's very... I mean, how bizarre would that yeah, have been? just too weird for words. Re- and he's actually the first British paratrooper of the main force to yeah. jump. Yeah. The very first. So there's yeah. the 22nd Independent yeah. Pathfinder Company who come down first in Dropping their... Dropping their Eureka, their, yeah, their yeah, Eureka yeah, exactly. beacons out and all that. Exactly. Uh, but then the, the main force, he's the first one. And, Eureka, he, and he bads it, and he's got, a, he's got a, um, an extra bag on his finger, yeah. and he, he tears his hand up on the rope. That's right. A Eureka beacon, by the way, if anyone... Um, I, I, th- I threw that in like you'd all know what that was. Um, what the, One of the ways that um, uh, they try to ensure that people drop parachute in the right place is a, a Pathfinder force would go ahead and they take a very specialist bit of equipment which, which basically, it was a great big radio beacon, and you'd, you'd hopefully they'd land in the right place. They'd set the beacon up, and then the force following on would be able to line up on the beacon and and uh, and drop people in the right place. And it didn't really pan out properly. In no, because it predisposes that you're going to be landing your beacon on the right place in the well, first exa- place. Exactly. It w- the the pathfinding at Arnhem was a massive success and an incredible success. They got their beacon set up. They did an amazing job, and. Uh, that Pathfinder company fought very gallantly and everything, but but um, just because you landed where you intended to doesn't necessarily mean things work out for you. Uh, to, to to reheat, um, quite an argument there. Okay, Nigel Jones said, "Who had the best and worst iron rations?" Well, I think the Italian rations were supposed to be the worst. They were, you know, everyone had not a good word about them in North Africa mm. at all. Um, I don't think the Germans were much cop, and I think they got worse and worse as the war progressed. Um, iron so, rations being, you, 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 you know, your stuff sort of combo rations, the right. stuff you can sort of carry around. Yeah. You know, so your K rations, your little box of yeah. K rations. I mean, clearly the Americans had the best. I mean, everyone got bored of K rations very, yeah. very quickly, but they were clearly the best because they had lots of really nice chocolate in them. Boiled and, sweets and, was the thing. I, the, I remember the British being, had boiled sweets, but I remember being Americans very struck. They had re- Hershey bars. Yeah, but I remember re- being very struck reading about the boiled sweets. The boiled sweets are very important because you'd be, your mouth would go dry when you're frightened. 
you'd be so scared that your mouth would go dry and and that the, the, all, all these sort of factoring in how people dealt with fear and factoring how people de- how how your physical reactions to peril so your your rations would have to um st- stop your bowels and then you'd need you'd need uh, um something to suck on so you didn't have a dry mouth and weren't discomforted and made even more panicked by that and so that the iron rush it's not just what they it's not just how tasty they are or how good the bacon is and all that sort of thing it's there's there's other things that work in them as well yeah absolutely and, and also you know british rations you know um bully beef nothing yeah. wrong with that at all i really like corned beef personally <laughs> although I, I i had this experiment where we were trying to sort of we were trying to do kind of sort of british rations so we had a little stove um a little prima stove mm. and we had bully beef so we had some corned beef and we had some sort of you know hard tack biscuits yeah and we scrunched them all up to turn it into a little hash and sort of you know stirred it all in and all the rest of it i mean it, it was disgusting <laughs> It was absolutely disgusting. Oh, I thought that story was going to have a, have a happy ending for me. It was awful. <laughs> it was absolutely awful. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. Welcome back from that necessary break. Um, uh, my comfort, if you're wondering. Um, uh, we've got some more questions now. British Racing Guns on Twitter, hashtag we have ways, asks Rommel, here we go. Uh, Good guy, bad guy, or lovable rogue? Discuss. You could do a whole, whole podcast on Rommel, couldn't you? Well, what, what everyone has to remember is is that he was very fortunate from his reputational point of view that he never fought on the Eastern Front. So he didn't. He doesn't have that. You know, yeah. There is nothing to suggest that he would not have treated Russians and Slavs and Ukrainians any differently from... Any of his contemporaries. Any of his contemporaries who were all kind of stained by that. You know, I, I can't say that for sure, but, you know, there's nothing to suggest it. Yeah. You also have to remember that he was enthralled to to Hitler before the war, quite a lot of the time during the war, even during the Normandy campaign uh, to start off with, he was really pumped by what Hitler was saying and, yeah, yeah you know, we're going to do this, we're going to knock the Allies back and all this kind of stuff. On the other hand, he definitely did have a sort of gentlemanly side to him and he came up against the ally, the Western Allies and, you know, prisoners and stuff were treated pretty fairly and with sort of nod to loosely yeah. the Geneva Convention yeah. and all those sort of things. Um, you know, his murder was monstrous. Yeah. You know, he, sh- he shouldn't have been. He wasn't, there's nothing to suggest at all that he was directly involved in the uh, assassination plot of um, against Hitler and, and 20th of July 1944 at all, for which he was yeah. ultimately murdered. I mean, basically what happened was the um, uh, the SD men, the, the, you know, the equivalent of the Gestapo, turned up at his house and said, you've got a choice. Um, you can either go on trial and you'll lose and you'll be executed and your family will be stripped mm. of everything, or you can take a cyanide pill now. But In he, 10 minutes, you've got 10 minutes to compose yourself. But he was out of commission anyway because he'd been... Because he'd been, he'd been very badly shot up on the 17th of July. Yeah. Just, what is What I think is much more interesting is would he have... Would he have managed to have got um, a, a peace deal against the, against the West in that middle of July period? Because it was certainly suggested that he was gearing up for it. He was certainly talking to people like Sepp Dietrich, who were you know yeah. SS corps commander in Normandy, people like that, and sort of sounding them out. And 
you know, saying, come but on. But there's that mood. There is that mood, isn't there? And it, 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 uh, you know, make peace, you fools. Is the is the is the sort of yes. the mood that's doing the rounds, isn't it? Yes. Uh, before before the you know before um, uh, the Moortown counterattack, for instance, there's there's a kind of consensus that, that we haven't really got any options. And then Hitler says, "Oh yes, you have. You're going to you're, you're going to counterattack." Never goes, what? The, uh, yeah. Very uh, well, mein Führer. Yeah. Off yeah. We go. All right. Well, all right. We'll do it then. Yeah. And 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 uh, so you. you and obviously, the July plot is one of the things that changes that. Is that is that suddenly everyone, everyone, you know, Hitler's Hitler's uh, uh, determination to hang on is sort of concreted by by the failure of the July plot, isn't it? Yes. And and also the sanctions that are, um, are brought to bear on people who are shown even the slightest disloyalty. Yep. Um, or not even the slightest. Like you say, you know, yeah. Rommel himself is a casualty of the July plot rather than totally, any, rather yeah. than anything else. But 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 unjustifiably so. There's no, there's nothing to suggest yeah, no, that no, he's of course involved not. at all. But that but that but that, that it is interesting. There is, there is there is a period where there where quite clearly there are people saying to each other, you know, we're done for here. We can't we can't win this. I mean, it's very interesting. You know that you know German officers they grow up with this sense of sort of Prussian honor and pride and stuff. You know, and honor is is something that we don't kind of sort of think about so much today, but is a really important part of day to day life in the 1940s. Not just within the German army, but you know, across the board, that, that one's honor. You know what? You know, if you my word is my bond, all that kind of stuff. That, that just counts for more. Uh, and there is a culture within that military elite in Germany, which goes back to kind of sort of Prussian militarism and all the rest of it, where, you know, if you've made your pledge, you do your political master's bidding. That is what you do. Yeah. And you and it's not yours to kind of Reason why? Well, reason why? You know that that is what you do, and that all of that is taken really seriously. And you know, as a, as a historian, kind of looking back on it, you know, seventy odd years later, you just think, well, why, you know, if they knew he's a rotten egg, why didn't they just kind of, yeah, you know, kick him into touch and just say, no, I'm not going to do it. Um, and of course, you know, some people did, mm. um, but it's it's you know what one mustn't do is sort of judge all these guys through the prism of the sort of second decade of the 21st century. Having said that, you know, what was going on in the Eastern Front was abominable by any standard of the day. So, yeah, yeah. you know, they knew better than that. Yeah. So uh, rather than a good guy, a bad guy, a level rogue. Uh, um, uh, it's more nuanced. Yeah, someone with good PR. Right, okay. So, um, and now we have uh, a question from James McKamey, I think it's pronounced. Um, do you have, or McKamey, do you have any ways of getting Shang, Sang Shack the recognition it deserves, today being the 75th anniversary of its most intense fighting. Fancy making it the subject of a film. Sangshack, James. Yeah, well, I, do you know what? I've actually been there. Now, Sangshack is in Nagaland. Ah, it's right. in northeast India. Yep. And yep. this is, this. we're into Forgotten Army territory. This is yep. 14th Army. This is against Mutaguchi's Japanese 15th Army and his strike in towards um, northeast India in the spring of 1944. The Japanese did a, a, a two-pronged attack. They First of all, they attacked up in the Arakan, what is now called, you know, Rakhine State, where all the Rohingyas mm. are and all the problems they're having. Uh, and their first attack was um, stopped at the Battle of the Admin Box, as it yep. was called. Um, uh, and then the main attack was Operation Ugo, uh, and this was the attack towards Imphal. Yes. And Imphal lies in this plain. It's surrounded by hills and jungly hills and mountains and stuff, which lead all the way down into Burma. Um, but then, uh, but there's airfields around that 
that plain of Imphal. And then you push on a bit more north, and there's more hills and more hills. And then you get to a place called Dimapur. And Dimapur is a really important railhead. It's the real main kind of railhead for the supply of northeast India and down into Burma for the British forces, British stroke Indian forces. And then you've got the Brahmaputra River. And what the Japanese high command are trying to do with Ugo is go in and make sure that the British aren't going to counterattack into Burma anytime soon. Yeah. However, Mutaguchi, who is this um, incredibly hawkish and gung-ho and vicious um, general, Japanese general, commander of the 15th Army, thinks, well, actually, you know what? If we can just get to Dimapur and we can get across to... Um, across the Brahmapucha, we could be in business here because, first of all, the Bengalis are, are kind of really against the British and that's the, the Free Indian Movement is never stronger yep. than it is there. Yep. So maybe we can sort of start up a major insurrection throughout the whole of the Raj, um, the British Raj. But secondly, if we can push on there into kind of sort of, you know, the, the airfields around Assam, then we can stop the Americans and British flying supplies into Chiang Kai-shek's yep. Um, national Chinese nationalists yep. across the hump, which of course is the Himalayas. Yeah. So and then, although we're kind of losing elsewhere in the war, this might really change things. It's a long, it's a big old ask that, but he's got a point. Well, he's got a point. He's got a point if the if the Japanese army uh, operationally is up to it. Um, yes. Yeah, so so there's an awful lot of ifs and buts. But the the problem is is General Slim, who is commander of the 14th Army, and he was completely brilliant in every single way. Um, has this plan, which is to... He knows the Japanese are going to attack. Mm. So the idea is to do a fighting retreat. So they'll attack. He knows they're going to want to get in file. It makes sense they're going to want to get in file because of the plane, because of the airfields and all the rest of it. So what he's going to do is is withstand the initial assault and then pull back, fighting and trying to sort of attrit the Japanese as draw, they draw, follow them, draw, draw them, them to in file. And, of course, the moment they get to in file, they've got these six airfields, so they can do airdrops and supply yeah. drops because they've now got air superiority uh, the British have, you know, the um, yeah. Slim has. Um, and then fight back and completely destroy them. That's the plan. Where it all goes horribly, potentially horribly wrong, is that the 31st Division, the Japanese 31st Division, which is commanded by a guy called General Sato, strikes much higher than Slim thinks they're going to be able to. Yeah. And they're heading towards a little village, a little outcrop in the, and there's a saddle. So the, there's one road that goes down to Tidim in the yep. north of um, uh, of Burma, up to Imphal, yep. then to Dimapur. It's about 136 miles, I think, something like that, from Imphal to Dimapur. And about two thirds away is this little kind of outcrop of Naga villages called Kahima. And it's in a saddle. Yep. And it's an obvious weak spot. But Slim doesn't think the Japanese are going to strike towards there. Well, but suddenly, 31st Division is coming at an enormously quick speed from the Burmese border directly towards Kahima, and it's yikes time. How did he? How much did Slim know about Japanese intentions and how much of their cipher traffic were was he reading? And, uh, 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 enough to know the essence, but not enough to know the detail. So the Japanese actually attack up the Tidim Road, for example, which is the road leading south from Imphal, a week earlier than he thinks, which completely discombobulates them. Right. 
Um, and actually, it's Punch Cowan who kind of retreats back and, and takes the initiative because initially he's told to kind of hold on a little bit, you know, don't don't react. This is a feint, and he goes, "No, hang on a minute. This is this is, this is the time to do my attritional fighting retreat time." And, <laughs> and he does, and and you know, he just uses his initiative. We were talking about initiative um, in the last podcast, but that's a moment where a general's doing that. In the way of Japanese Thirty First Division to Kohima is a tiny Naga village called Sangshak. And there, resting up, ready to be deployed at a time where it should they be needed, is the 50th Indian Parachute Brigade, commanded by Brigadier William Hope Thompson, who is the youngest brigadier in the Indian Army, aged just 31. And suddenly it's, oh my God, you know, we're a little kind of parachute brigade, so you're under strength anyway, because yep. parachute strength uh, brigades are, um, battalions are nothing like as strong as an, an ordinary brigade, because you don't have all the add-on troops, you don't have all the kind of the stuff that goes with a normal, a normal brigade. And uh, they're stripped down, that's all point yeah. of parachutes. And... This, this. Um, first of all, it is um, uh, one of the uh, one of the um, parachute battalions of Indian parachute battalions comes straight up against the kind of main weight of the thirty first division and gets surrounded. They fight absolutely ferociously, um, but they're basically annihilated to a yeah. man. Um, and then you know, and and they're a few miles further east from the rest, the bulk of the parachute brigade. And so Hope Thompson says, "Crikey, you know we haven't got anything here. We're just not quit for defence, but we're gonna we're gonna defend Sangshak. And Sangshak and itself is on a hill, but it's also got a little a little saddle. So there's part of the village on one side, and then there's this kind of sort of it's almost like a square kind of sort of plateauy bit on a sort of knoll. And he decides, okay, we'll make our stand here. But he's got none of the stuff that you would normally yeah. have to make a stand. He hasn't got any barbed wire. He hasn't got any mines. So it's just a question of digging in." And just hoping for the best and holding, hoping you can hold out for absolutely as long as possible. The Japanese, being the Japanese, don't just go round them. They go, right, we're not going to take up with this. We, we've got to deal with these guys. Yeah. And so they make this big on attack. And they divert lots and lots of troops to deal with Sangshak. And Sangshak holds out for something like four days. And the first attack, there's, there's an amazing description of this Gurkha officer. So, so the Japanese attack across this saddle. Just it's, it's, uh, The sun is going down. There's, there's a, the whole, whole hill is sort of swathed in this sort of absolutely beautiful golden glow of the setting sun as the Japanese attack and they just get cut down by their brain right. guns and, and yeah. you know small arms and and there's this image of them he said it was almost like slow motion these these just these this company whole entire company of japanese infantry just rolling cascading down this hill as they're cut down basically they lose kind of sort of you know 95 percent of the entire company God. in this one attack and obviously you know talk about hornet's nest i mean you know then they're, they're, they're stuck what they do manage to do though is one of those officers one of the japanese officers japanese officers were always being caught with huge operations plans um yeah. with, in, in great detail about yeah. their person uh, <laughs> uh, which was an enormous help and uh, what they did manage to do was they managed to break out of the lines and get it back to Imphal. wow so it was complete operational orders of yugo and that was a great a great coup it took them something like it took 31st division something like i can't quite remember how uh, the absolute details but something like it took them six days to get two-thirds of the way to Kohima, which is where Sangshak is. Yeah. And it then took them a further kind of 10 days to get to Kohima. Why didn't they... And in that time, the garrison at Kohima, which was small, yes, was able was to organise itself and get reinforced. Yeah, and, yeah. and, 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 and it just made 
all the difference. Why didn't they go? Why didn't they go round it? Why didn't they seal off Sang Shack and get what? Why? Because they're Japanese and they just don't do that. They just they just, what they like to do is they sort of they see an enemy, they envelop them, they completely surround them, and then destroy them, destroy them, and, and then and, and take all their stuff. Right, because part of the the, the lightness of the German uh, of the Japanese way of war was to feed off your enemy. Yeah, so they just thought it was going to be an easy fight. They just overrun this stuff. There's a bunch yeah. of you know small guys there, not particularly well armed, but we'll 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 knock them out. We'll take all their stuff. That'll be good because we still got to go to Kohima. But you know, they wouldn't back down. You know, once we started, we've got to finish. So it's that kind of thing going on. And, so- and by the time they then get to Kohima, they're already pretty knackered. And, and why is the why is the Japanese army um, set up like that uh, uh, tactically and operationally? Why 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 are they not? Is is this uh, a, a cultural um, decision about how to do war, or is this necessity that they they don't have the deep pockets that say the Allies do? Is it, it or is it is it um, you know necessity being the mother of invention is what I'm asking? It, it's really just lack of resources. I mean, you know, the, the Japanese just don't have enough of anything. And so their way of their way of fighting is is to be like locusts and just sort of take what you know. You travel light, um, and you feed off what you what you what you win, um, and that's always the way. So that you know, this is this is the genius of Slim. You know what he what he works out is that if you just hold your ground and don't give an inch, they're going to get stuff pretty soon because yeah. they'll start running out of ammunition and food really quickly. Yeah, because- and if you can then supply your own men in a pocket, you you've got to stop thinking in terms of traditional battle lines and we're on this ridge and they're on that ridge and there's a kind of no man's land in the middle. It's not like that. This is is what's in modern parlance called asymmetric warfare. Yeah, it's just a very different way of doing things. And I mean, I have to say, it was amazing up there because no one's been there because it's really inhospitable. You can't just get. You have to go through lots of roadblocks of the Assam rifles to get there you have to get special permission to go there anyway manipur state has had an insurrection so it's just been completely off limits for 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 ages and ages so there is lots and lots of this old battlefield that have just been untouched since you know 1944-45 and all around sangshak it's quite a steep hill um on the top on one side of it we just found all these old british trenches and positions and stuff where the defenders had had dug in and they're all there and, and you know it, it is exactly how you would imagine it when you think of sort of jungly stuff and and sort of dried leaves under the foot and branches and bamboo and all the rest of it i mean that is exactly what it's like it's completely brilliant i mean I, i've got to say it was the most exciting battlefield tour i'd ever been on i i was i just found the whole thing completely amazing and on that and that road is still the road i mean yeah. there is no other road linking Gehima to Dimapur to, yeah. to to Imphal, and there was one hair bend um, over, over you know on a corner of mountains one side you know hills a jungle cloud of hills one side tiny hairpin bend and there next to it is a Bailey Bridge oh wow yeah from 1944 I oh, mean it's just unbelievable superb it really is an amazing place but Hope Thompson was sacked. Really? He was sacked afterwards. They felt that, you know... I was going he, to ask what happened to Hope Thompson. Yeah, no, it's really, really... I mean, you know, he they, they said, you know, his defence wasn't good and he didn't do what he should have done and all this sort of stuff. But actually, you know, we I remember looking at the ground and just thinking, crikey, you know, this was unbelievable what he did. And, yeah. and you know, he chose absolutely the best spot what he did was brilliant and and the reason he he was he was criticized was because eventually they just broke out they broke out and pulled back and they said he pulled back too early but you know they run out of ammo you know yeah. kind of you know there's nothing else they could do yeah 
Wow. Well, it's time to retreat with our heads held high, James. Uh, that's it for this week. That was that's fascinating. Um, Got to go there because I know I know about the admin box. You, you know, Infar, Coma, and uh, you, uh, you know they're the where where Slim gives battle. Yeah, is, is, was his obviously was his thinking, wasn't it? All right, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough, and and we'll we'll beat you. Uh, and it was completely successful. The amazing thing, the other thing about Sangshak is is you can uh, just the other side of it. You you come down through the trenches off the thing, and there's a kind of little sort of flat bit. Um, and you can look down over this absolutely beautiful valley, and it's a bit like the you know the corridor of death in in um, yeah. in the Falais pocket yeah. because exactly the same thing happens after the failure at Kahima. After the Japanese have finally get defeated at Kahima, they retreat back towards Burma, and the route they take is the same route they came up, which is this valley just to the just to the kind of north of of, of Sangshak. And down there was this is the road of bones that, that yeah. Fergal Keane wrote about. You know, this is where they just they were emaciated, they were yeah. ill, they kind of were left where they dropped. Yeah. And um, you know, it was the sort of end of an army. I mean, the, you know, Mutaguchi's army was absolutely was destroyed, decimated. Yeah. 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 So it completely worked, and that's why you know it was voted some years ago as Britain's greatest battle because it was you know every single bit of it strategically, operational, tactically, it was just really well fought. And of course, it had its little anxious moments such as Kahima and Sangshak and so on um, but to answer the question yes Sangshak should be more on the map and it's an, <laughs> it's one of those geography things if you can't get to it then it didn't happen but you can get to it now that's the exciting thing brilliant well thank you for your questions um, uh, keep them coming uh, thanks for listening do keep sending them in uh, and stories and all round observations on Twitter use the hashtag we have ways we'll debate and dispute as many as we can see you next time yep cheerio